before we do anything else, off top, let's not get this twisted. It's still fuck Hoover all day, okay? I suspected the FBI just like Coretta and them because I already knew too much about COINTELPRO. I already knew too much about Hoover's FBI during those years. Hoover's FBI back then was an American secret police operation. We had secret police. Straight up. We had secret police dedicated to preserving white supremacy, capitalism, the patriarchy, U.S. imperialism. We know this. It's not a secret. The documents are out there. The FBI's own documents. Hoover's own words. Google.com. She's open 24 hours a day. Hit her up. It's all there. And it still fucked the Pentagon all day, okay? All their spying on King, King's father, King's grandfather, and who knows who else back then. And it still fucked Memphis PD all day. The Memphis PD responded to the assassination with, with just this unbelievably racist negligence. Can you imagine if, if it had been Elvis who had gotten shot? They would have shut that city down to find that dude. But somehow, all those likeliest of, of suspects weren't the killers. It was this drifter, this loner criminal named James Earl Ray, who had become radicalized by right-wing voices and made into a killer. The murder of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shots that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not Welcome back to the Crux. So, I feel like I got duped by Ray. I'm not one to buy into conspiracy theories. But Ray got me. I don't do conspiracy theories. Plenty of, of shady shit happens in broad-ass daylight, out in the open, right in front of our eyes. Like, I don't need conspiracies. I don't need some grand 9-11 conspiracy theory about the Trade Center attack being this false flag joint, like this inside job by, by Dick Cheney or whatever. When I have, you know, the reality of what happened in the lead up to the Iraq invasion, where Cheney and, and his team lied. I mean, that, that's a, that's a matter of public record. I don't, I don't need the, the, the bombast of, of this 9-11 inside job story when I know the well-documented reality of manipulation that led the country to war. The truth is enough to worry about without inventing these ornate, ultra-tenuous conspiracies. I don't need some grand conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds or some bullshit anti-Semitic spookiness about Jews and the banks or, you know, whatever, when I know the, the basics of, of just how Wall Street works, how finance capitalism works. I don't need conspiracy theories when, when reality has its own unsolved problems. I don't need conspiracy theories when the real crimes happen in broad daylight. But I got fooled by Ray. But I defend myself in two ways. One 
is that I knew too much about Hoover's FBI. I knew too much about COINTELPRO. I knew too much about our government's fear of black liberation back then. Their fear of economic revolt. Their fear of, of a cross-racial alliance. Their fear of a, of a widespread rejection of imperialism and, and military aggression. In other words, a real fear of what King singularly embodied in 1967 and 68. I knew too much about that to not include governmental actors as suspects, especially Hoover. Hoover's hatred for King was just legendary. It even persisted past King's death when Hoover tried to work behind the scenes to make sure that there wouldn't even be a Martin Luther King holiday. As we've just just partially covered, Hoover's FBI was, was far too involved to not be a suspect. Second, there's a real allure to conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories reduce complexity to, to just a few moving parts. They reduce confusion and, and contradiction to something simple, like a, like a, like a, a grand unified theory. In a way, they're sort of perversely comforting, especially the big ones where it's some group controlling everything, you know, the Illuminati or the New World Order or whatever. So take 9-11 again. You could implicate global capitalism presided over by Washington and fueled by petroleum, which in the end implicates you and me. You could implicate everything that goes into you and me getting cheap gas at the pump. We are the beneficiaries. We are the beneficiaries of, of what makes the Middle East so tumultuous. You could implicate the, the Saudis and, and the Gulf State Sunnis, our allies, who push and fund Wahhabism, like extreme Sunni Islam. You could implicate the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories and Washington's defense of that. There's Moscow and, and Washington's proxy war in Afghanistan during the Cold War where, again, Washington funded the beginnings of al-Qaeda. And then there's, you know, the U.S. emerging out of the Cold War as the, as the single global hegemon and all that that entails. I mean, there, that's just a brief, brief list of the phenomena leading to the attack on 9-11. The circumstances that created all the stuff that we're involved in over there. Or you could say like a good many folks do, that 9-11 was an inside job, what they call a false flag operation, pulled off by Bush and Cheney. People, people actually think this. And it's typically the same folks who also reduce most of geopolitics and, and global economics to a matter of, you know, Freemasons and Jews and the Illuminati, you know. But those sorts of theories, you know, they, they collapse these these vast matrices of causality into these like comic book like proportions of bad guys, spooky bad guys controlling the world from their like dark chambers. In fact, if you listen to some of the biggest conspiracy theorists, it sounds like they're describing some sort of secular God, a force with these impossible powers to control the world like a, like a puppet on a string. I might even argue that, that every conspiracy theory is, is a, like a dark metaphor for God or, or faith. 
Now, the theory of the FBI being behind the King assassination is, is I, I would argue, much more reasonable than those grand Illuminati-type theories. But it does share in that essential character of, of all those theories. It reduces complexity, which means that it limits culpability. It confines the evil to some single person or, or group. It makes Hoover the bad guy of these impossible proportions. And it might be that, that we that we sort of need to think of evil being in in one place, concentrated or quarantined, sequestered. That's what conspiracy theories do. If I'm able to say that, that such and such group or person is the single source of evil, like the Illuminati or Dick Cheney or the New World Order or Hoover or whatever, then it sort of absolves everyone else to some extent, which in the end means it absolves me to the extent that I would at all be involved. My own participation isn't guilt if I'm just powerless against a, a force more powerful than I could ever dream of being. So this is also part of the reason that I, that I continued to extend some degree of humanity to Ray past the point when I'd made the turn toward, toward finding him guilty. I didn't want to populate the story with monsters by which I mean like figures or entities of pure evil of the sort you get with conspiracy theories. I didn't want to replace a monster in the form of Hoover's FBI with a figure of pure evil in Ray. Once you make someone into a monster, you, you lose sight of how we're all at risk of participating in evil. Life isn't a comic book where some evil guy in a, in a tower creates and, and controls all of the evil. We all participate in it. Every white person participates in racism in America to this degree or that. Now, that was vastly more true in the years leading up to King's death, but it remains true. All Americans participate in imperialism to varying degrees. Every man participates in the patriarchy and, and so on. There is, in the end, a banality of evil. Shouts to Hannah Arendt. Like, the worst evils that we're capable of aren't, aren't accomplished by these single monsters acting independently. In the end, they're accomplished by societies. Individuals may murder, but, but it's societies that, that do the massacring. It's the broad participation of the rest of us that's the actual implementation of the evil. It's like Hitler didn't kill millions of Jews by himself. Lots of other people actually did the killing. And a whole lot of rest of the folks just sat back and, and didn't cause any sort of fuss. That's a team effort. Making Hitler into some impossible comic book bad guy doesn't account for the participation of, of so many others. Or in the American context, slavery. Slavery was an institution participated in by virtually everyone. Everyone white, whether actively or, or tacitly. It wasn't just the plantation owners who kept slavery in place. 
It was like basically all Americans, the vast majority of whom did not own slaves. It was a white supremacist culture that kept slavery in place. Guilt isn't reserved for just the the planters and the overseers and and the slave traders. Every quiet white beneficiary shared in the guilt. And I say all that to say that that telling a story in which guilt is confined like very simply and cleanly to, you know, like J. Edgar Hoover or James Earl Ray, that isn't at all sufficient. White supremacy killed Martin Luther King Jr. James Earl Ray was just the guy who pulled the trigger. Now, that doesn't absolve Ray and it doesn't absolve Hoover. Hoover and his FBI were really an important component of American white supremacy. They were sort of the, the enforcers. In fact, there's a, there's a really interesting connection between Ray and Hoover that, that sort of illustrates this. So the St. Louis Globe Democrat is the big paper where Ray grew up and where his family still lived. This paper ran an editorial the weekend that Ray bought the gun in Alabama before traveling to Memphis, the weekend of March 30th and 31st. See, the paper's editor was one of the many newsmen that Hoover had cultivated relationships with. He liked to cultivate these relationships with with editors and writers and and publishers to try to run FBI propaganda through newspapers and magazines and, and however he could. So the FBI sends a memo to the editor of the St. Louis paper to try to get this really vicious smear job printed about King right ahead of the Poor People's Campaign in Washington. And and sure enough, they they comply. It's crazy. So the assassination committee, looking at, at both the, the, the memo and the article, they find that, quote, language in the editorial was virtually plagiarized from the FBI memorandum. Okay, so here's a sample. And remember, this isn't an op-ed from some wingnut contributor. This is the official editorial from the paper's editors and publisher, running on Saturday and Sunday to get as many readers as possible. Quote, It is time for all Americans to look at Martin Luther King and see him not as they wish him to be, but as he is. By his actions, he is proving to be one of the most menacing men in America today. Reverend King is more dangerous than Stokely Carmichael because of his nonviolent masquerade. The deception no longer hoodwinks intelligent Americans. Memphis could be only the prelude to a massive bloodbath in the nation's capital in several weeks. Unquote. That's, f- that's fucking nuts. That's the editorial. So, you know, a, a good red-blooded American racist, you know, a real, a real patriot, so-called, might, might read that and think, well, shit, somebody needs to do something about this king guy. A man thinking himself some sort of hero might, might decide after reading that, that he needs to take matters into his own hands. That's what a hero would do. One leaves the editorial thinking King is a real threat. King needs to be stopped. And that editorial would have been echoing other things one might have heard from the FBI's propaganda department. The assassination committee concluded that, quote, it was apparent that the FBI's manipulation of the media contributed to a hostile attitude toward Dr. King. They had to admit that. And who read that editorial? None other than John Ray, 
James's brother in the St. Louis area. He read it. The assassination committee obtained evidence that John Ray, quote, read and absorbed the editorial and that, quote, the editorial made a significant impression on him. John Ray recounted the editorial four years later, a whole four years later, to author George McMillan in a letter. In the letter, John Ray echoes this editorial, practically ghostwritten by the FBI, explaining that, that King was really this dangerous, evil manipulator. John Ray was parroting the very words and sentiments from an FBI memo designed to do just that, inflame the passions of these white supremacists. That's not playing with fire, is it? James Earl Ray's brother was practically being, like, ventriloquized by Hoover just days before Ray left for Memphis. And John Ray writes something else in the letter that really goes to the point I'm trying to make. So, writing to this author, John Ray explains that, quote, There are millions of Rays in the United States with the same background and beliefs, unquote. There are millions of Rays. There are millions of Rays waiting to be radicalized. And Hoover and the FBI very certainly helped create the conditions for, for one of those millions of Rays to become radicalized. With ghost-written editorials like the one John Ray was so taken by and the FBI's other propaganda efforts, the Bureau was, was poisoning the public mind. We don't know if James Earl Ray read the editorial, but what's certain is that efforts like that by the FBI kept those millions of Rays angry, kept them scared, kept them hateful, kept them ready and, and eager to hate. And from there, it's only a short stop to being radicalized. So how did James Earl Ray become radicalized? So the success of Rhodesia in maintaining a, a white supremacist colony state appears to have been a real inspiration to Ray, as, as we've covered. But that was on the other side of the world. It was something much closer to home that really radicalized Ray. So Ray had tried to downplay that desire to move to Rhodesia. That was something I think he felt was, you know, obviously incriminating. But it was something else that he really worked to keep from being known. When Ray pled guilty in March of 1969, he and his lawyer, this guy Percy Foreman, reportedly debated and argued for like 10, 12 days about the stipulations in the guilty plea. This is perhaps why Ray made his legally yes plea. And there was a particular stipulation that really held things up. Ray did not want it included that he'd been working on the George Wallace presidential campaign. Ray did not want this made public. He did not want this admitted. And this is my thesis, that Ray was radicalized while working on the Wallace campaign in California. This is where Ray, you know, a racist like, you know, so many others in 1967, gets turned into a soldier for white supremacy. And I don't think this would have made as much sense to me in a different time, even like a year ago. This idea that a presidential campaign could could draw out this latent violence in individuals and in society. Anybody who's paid much attention to the presidential race will will no doubt find some really alarming parallels to Wallace's run in 1967 and 68. 
So who is this George Wallace, this guy who, who awakened racists to, to join forces and whose campaign, I argue, served to radicalize Ray? Let's rewind just a few years. Go back to 1963. That's when Wallace really first comes onto the national stage. He gives this real barn burner of an inaugural address when he's sworn in as Alabama governor. Comes to be known as the infamous Segregation Forever speech. It's complete fucking trash. I'll play a little bit of it in a second, and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. So white folks in the South were mad as hornets about the quickening pace of black rights and the degree to which they were losing, I guess, their positions of privilege. They were really feeling a type of way. And in Alabama and in Birmingham specifically, they were like holding the line. This is this was this is where the battle was going to happen. So in the past decade, you'd had, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education. You'd had Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott and the lunch counter sit ins and this growing movement that, that was coming to be led by King and Alabama and Birmingham specifically were saying, nah, not here. But they also knew they knew shit was changing. I think they knew white Southerners knew that things were changing. And you know how white people get when they feel like they shit is being taken. When they feel like their privilege is being taken. They will rally together real quick and find somebody to lead the way. And Wallace emerged as the national figure to tell racist white people that he was their defense. It was going to be okay. Follow me. He was the man who said he'd bring back the America they felt they were losing. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Later that year, this is, again, 1963, Wallace made his infamous stand in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. He did this to prevent the college's first two black students from registering. It was his own sort of iconic moment that summer, like King would have on the National Mall in Washington with his I Have a Dream speech. So Birmingham pretty quickly in 1963 becomes like the epicenter of the civil rights battle. So King and the SELC, they come to town to set up shop to battle Wallace. So as King and the SELC launch what would become the, the famous Birmingham campaign to integrate what King called the most segregated city in America, Birmingham, Wallace led the movement to maintain that state's apartheid rule. So you have these two men that meet in Birmingham, King and Wallace, who grow to be these titans who battle on the national stage from 1963 until King's death in 1968. 
King represented a new racial beginning in America, and Wallace represented a return to how things had been. King said our greatness was in front of us, and Wallace said it was something that we were losing, something we had to find again. In that year, in 1963, it was that that fierceness from Wallace and his outspoken commitment to, to white rule, to apartheid rule in Alabama, that sparked this wave of white terrorism, the likes of which we haven't seen since. Dylan Roof's attack in 2015 was, was something of a throwback to that time, especially with the target being a, a black church. But the terrorism that spread during Wallace's first year really was more reliant on bombs. I mean, black folks were killed with guns. Don't get it twisted. But it was much more like the sort of terrorism that we see in the Middle East. Birmingham gained the name Bombingham during those years. And in that first year of, of Wallace's governorship was really violent. I mean, really, the only analog we have is like, you know, Al-Qaeda and other groups like that in a place like Baghdad, where, you know, you might see multiple bombings in a week. The only difference may be that explosive technology w- was such in 1963 that these white terrorists really only had dynamite at their disposal. I mean, they didn't have those higher grade explosives that, that Al-Qaeda and, and, you know, the folks in Oklahoma City in 1995 and people like that use. And so these white terrorists emerged as sort of the paramilitary or, or terrorist wing to Wallace's political wing. They sort of worked in tandem. So with King and the SCLC in town promising to bring Wallace's Alabama into the 20th century, the terrorist wing of, of the movement led by Wallace really dug in and, and vowed to fight. So as the school year approached in 1963, this would be the first year that they even attempted the smallest degree of integration. Terrorism just rocked Birmingham. Like Dylan Roof, the terrorists tended toward black churches and on August 10th, they firebombed a black church. Luckily, no one was killed despite the church being raised, but from there, the attacks continued in quick succession. So a few days later, Klansmen attack all the stores that are integrated with tear gas. A few days after that, prominent civil rights attorney Arthur Shore, his home is bombed. September 3rd, Wallace looks the other way as what was called the National States Rights Party, which, you know, might sound innocuous enough, but no, it was this really violent group with Klan ties and heavily neo-Nazi. Wallace looks the other way, like wink, wink, as they do this planned riot in order to create this illusion that this new desegregation inevitably leads to to chaos and violence. The next day, Arthur Shore's home is bombed again. And then, on September 15th, five days after the integration of of the formerly all-white Birmingham schools, terrorists bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four little girls right before church on Sunday morning and injuring more than 20 more. Ten days later, a bomb is detonated in a black neighborhood in Birmingham, with a second, way worse bomb exploding minutes later as first responders arrived. That second bomb was loaded with shrapnel in order to do maximum damage to flesh. And that's just the bigger, like, headline-grabbing stuff. In the protests after the 16th Street Baptist bombing, a 16-year-old black boy was shot dead by police. His crime? His crime was throwing rocks at Wallace supporters who were driving through his neighborhood, his black neighborhood, flying Confederate flags and like 
gloating about the recent terrorist attack that killed four little girls. Another 13-year-old black boy was killed that afternoon, just riding on his bike. Stuff that would make headlines today was just a footnote back then. It's really terrifying to consider how deadly these terrorists would have been if their explosives were as powerful as their 21st century counterparts, folks in Al-Qaeda and, and stuff like that. The death toll would have been much, much worse. A bomb that failed to detonate in, in Birmingham in 1964, that next year, had more than 100 sticks of dynamite, as many as 243, according to some reports. It's not like they weren't trying for maximum bloodshed and destruction. They just didn't have the tools that later terrorist groups like the IRA and, and Al-Qaeda and folks like that would have. They weren't holding back. These weren't cherry bombs. They were putting all their effort in to creating as much bloodshed as possible. And so King, who'd, who'd been in Birmingham so much that year working against segregation saw this terrorism as, as being called into being by Wallace. Wallace's rhetoric inflamed the passions of these white supremacists and gave license to their action. That's what King believed. So speaking the day after the 16th Street Baptist bombing, where those four little girls were killed, King said, quote, The governor said things, did things, which caused these people to feel that they were being aided and abetted by the highest officer in the state. The murders of yesterday stand as blood on the hands of Governor Wallace. Unquote. King's argument, which, which I'm co-signing, is that having someone like Wallace rise to a position of, of power and prominence does something to animate and, and permit violence among supporters. Someone like Wallace rising to prominence emboldens white supremacist. It gives a certain license to violence. It's not a coincidence. It's, it's not even unusual that violence would have accompanied the rise of this demagogue trafficking in, in racial hatred at the very moment that these white folks felt like the country was just changing right beneath their feet. There are figures, there are, are individuals who who serve to sort of call evil into being. I I don't like the word evil. Let's let's say call violence into being. Whether willfully or or not, whether or not it's their aim, they they weaponize what is otherwise just hate. It's just a feeling into something actionable and and dangerous, something with consequences. There are leaders who who galvanize feeling into action. And that's what Wallace did. His emergence as a national leader promising a, a return to, to white supremacy called violence into being. Wallace was one of those political leaders who, who accelerated things, the sort of politician who brought the cultural and, and political rumblings to the surface to become embodied. Hate is only hate until it's called upon to be violence. And Wallace was a figure who turned hate into violence. Now, 
he didn't explicitly call for that sort of violence from the podium. But his campaign events were very often the site of, of violent clashes with progressive protesters, something that Wallace really relished in on the campaign trail. And when Wallace announced a run for president in 1967, King repeated this charge that Wallace's rhetoric wasn't just hateful or, or disagreeable, but that it was dangerous and how it might engender violence. King, having watched what happened in 1963 in Birmingham, knew better than maybe anyone how Wallace's rhetoric could, could radicalize. And now Wallace was opening it up to infect the entire nation. King could only be frightened of what might come. I think a candidacy for the president on the part of Mr. Wallace would only confuse the minds of many people. It would appeal mainly to extremist elements in our society. And uh, I think it would create the atmosphere for new bigotry, new hatred, and ultimately uh, new violence. So I think a candidacy on the part of Mr. Wallace would be uh, a very tragic and he would still go down his road of trying to turn the clock of history back, which he can never do. And certainly nobody fears Governor Wallace, uh, former Governor Wallace, winning as president of the United States. But just the candidacy itself, I think, will arouse a lot of things that we don't need alive today because I hope we're moving toward that glad day of brotherhood when every man will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. King predicted that a Wallace candidacy would create an atmosphere of extremism, which it did. That just the candidacy itself would arouse a new bigotry and violence, which it did. That it would radicalize, which it did. And what's chilling there is that King is, in a way, foretelling his own assassination. Wallace's campaign did end up creating an atmosphere of extremism and violence and, and it radicalized conservatives, one of whom was a drifter and an escaped convict, calling himself Eric Starvo Galt, a loner not known for joining anything, but one who would dedicate his life to Wallace's cause. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question is can the best stick up. Number one question